Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out to gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At the evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. The word of the Lord. A reading from 2 Corinthians. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. What, What we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you against the giving of you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about inward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are not in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard one another according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold... The new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of the Lord. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord. 
So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. And so they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And he said to them, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The Gospel of the Lord. So uh, um, a few years ago, um, at Church of the Cross, uh, we um, did a play um, based on uh, the book The Great Divorce uh, by C.S. Lewis. Um, and um, uh, I had an opportunity, along with many uh, members of Church of the Cross, uh, to act um, in that play. Um, and uh, for me, it was the first time I had been in a play. Um, I'd really done acting uh, uh, since I was in college. I don't think the annual videos we do at Church of the Cross count as real acting. So I counted that theater uh, production um, uh, as sort of my return to theater. And it was an opportunity for me to sort of remember and be reminded um, by those involved in the play sort of like what theater involves. Um, And uh, in particular, uh, I remember sort of being struck again of how important it is for an actor to think about the motivation of their character. Um, And so um, in the play, I actually played a bishop who had sort of developed basically his own theology, had moved away from a scriptural, biblical theology, and it kind of developed this theology of, you know, as long as what you believe is sincere and heartfelt, it's true. So sort of what's ultimately true didn't really matter to this character. He had kind of gone more along the lines of what is your heart telling you? What, what do you feel? And for me, playing that character, that's not in line with my theology. Hopefully uh, you all know that. If you've been to Church of the Cross for a while, it would have been a temptation to sort of play him mockingly, right? To show, how oh, this character is wrong. How do I play him in a way to demonstrate how wrong he is? Uh, but we had good directors, Maddie um, Halverson and Debbie Salmon, who encouraged myself and others. No, you need to em- enter into the character. You need to think about what motivates them, right? If you play them sort of to mock them, right, that's not actually going to be effective. You have to really play them for who they are, right? What motivates every line that you say? I heard an interview recently with um, John Krasinski, the actor, and he was talking about um, how uh, in the early um, years, one of the early seasons of The Office, where he played Jim, how um, before a scene they were about to film, um, he was talking to the director, and he's like, I'm so nervous about this scene. I really want it to be funny. He's like, it is so funny in the script. I want to make sure it's funny. I want to make sure to play it really funny. And the director was like, no, don't play it funny. Right? Play it real. Right? Play it really like Jim would act, and that will make it funny. 
But you need to be concerned about what motivates the character. You don't need to be concerned about being funny. Well, I'm talking about motivation and thinking about motivation because today in our 2 Corinthians uh, passage, we're in a series on 2 Corinthians, we're basically given insight into Paul's motivation. What motivates him as an apostle? Right? If you were to play the Apostle Paul um, in, a, you know, in a theatrical um, uh, version of 2 Corinthians, right, you would spend time in this passage to say, what's my motivation? Right? What motivates me? And as we've said throughout this series, again, so much of 2 Corinthians is about Paul's ministry and what motivates him in his ministry. But we can take to heart, we can look at this and say, all right, let's learn what's happening with Paul, but then let's also say, well, what does this mean for us? Right? Paul had a unique calling, right, as an apostle, as one who was called to start churches and give oversight to churches. But as he talks about his calling, I believe there's application for all of us who are called to serve the Lord in a variety of ways and different vocations. But we, too, are called to be servants, to live for Christ. And so we can look at these motivations and we can say, okay, this is what motivates Paul, but how do we experience the same motivation in our unique callings? So again, I think we can read this both as a specific person's motivations, but read this broadly as the motivation of a servant of the Lord, the motivation of a servant of Christ. What motivates him? Well, right there in verse 11, we see one key thing. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, we know, again, because there's a therefore there, that this is building on the verse right before it, on which um, uh, Pastor Joel spoke on this passage last week. At the end of um, uh, the first section of chapter 5, Paul says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So he's just spoken about all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And then he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. All right, so right away we say, okay, well, who's the Lord? I mean, we know who the Lord is, right? The Lord God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But specifically, he's speaking of the Lord Jesus, right? He's speaking about the throne of Christ, and he's speaking about then the fear of the Lord. I think that's really important because I think often when we hear fear of the Lord, we think, well, fear of the Lord must mean sort of that Old Testament God. Right? And Jesus is in the Old Testament as well, to be clear. Right? But we differentiate. Right? He's talking about the fear of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? And that also means, and if we think about what, what is the fear of the Lord, what does it mean the, the fear of the Lord Jesus? We know it's not a fear of condemnation. Because right? if we read Paul, we know absolutely not. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. It's not a fear that there will be a lack of mercy from Jesus. Jesus is full of mercy. It's not a fear that, you know, we'll be separated from the love of Christ. That's in, you know, the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. No. Right? So what is this fear that he's speaking of as he speaks of knowing the fear of the Lord? Right? It is an awe. It is a wonder. It is the fact that Jesus Christ is the judge of all. Right? It's a fear knowing the incredible authority and power of Jesus. Right? And it is a fear that actually doesn't push us away, right? I think we hear fear and we think run away. No, this is a different type of fear. This is a fear that actually draws us to the throne. It actually draws us to Jesus. But we are drawn to him with trembling. Right? We are drawn to him with awe. Right? Because again, he is the judge of all, right? That should make us tremble rightly. And again, that's in any way denying the mercy and the love of Jesus. But it's acknowledging he is holy and he is all powerful. Right? And he is the judge of all. And so knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Right? Not that we warn others. Right? We don't say, watch out, man, Jesus. You know, be afraid of him. No. We say, know Jesus. Know his mercy. Come before his throne. Right? That's what the fear of the Lord inspires. 
But in particular, actually, I'm struck that as Paul talks about what does the fear of the Lord inspire? What motivates him? How is he motivated by the fear of the Lord to persuade others, to tell others about Jesus? But it's in the way that he does it, I believe, that's as well informed by the fear of the Lord. Because what does he say next? But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's also known to your conscience. Right? To live in the fear of the Lord is to know first and foremost who we are is known by God. Right? I, I think the order actually matters here. Right? We minister, he's saying, we are motivated by the fact that God knows us. He knows our character. Right? He knows our integrity. He knows our hearts. He knows our motivation, and we hope you know it too. Right? He's not saying, I don't care if you know our motivation. I don't actually care if you know anything about me. No, he does care. He wants the Corinthians to know his heart. He wants the Corinthians to know what motivates him. That's why he's writing this letter. But he's making clear, my starting point actually is being known by the Lord. And then I want to be known by you all. But my first and foremost motivation in what I do is actually that the Lord knows me. It comes clear, right, as he continues to say, we're not commending ourselves again. A big theme in Corinthians, right, he talks a lot about are we commending ourselves. But here he makes clear, look, actually what we want you to boast about is that we care more about what's in the heart than the outward appearance. Right? He's differentiating. He's saying, look, there's these super apostles that have come up before, these leaders that we believe are wrongly influencing the church. He's saying, look, for them, it's all about the outward appearance. And you need to understand, actually, that what motivates us first and foremost is what's in our heart, right? not outward appearance. Again, it's not that it doesn't matter what we do to other people. right? It does matter. But he's saying we start in the place of God knows our heart. And then we have verse 13, such an interesting verse, for if we beside ourselves as for God... If we're in our right mind, it is for you. When he speaks about being besides ourselves, it's actually a, it's a way of saying if we seem crazy, right? if it seems like what we're doing makes no sense whatsoever, just know it's for God. Right? He's basically saying, look, as we serve God first, as our starting point is God knowing our hearts, God knowing our motivations, looking first and foremost to please the Lord, there are going to be times where you look at us and you're going to say, that's crazy. Right? I mean, we've seen that already, right? I mean, he talks about the suffering that he's called to as an apostle and the, be sort of the first in line of the prisoners, right? He's saying, look, there are times where it's not going to make any sense and just understand and believe that this is because we serve God. But when we're in our right minds, when you look at us like, that makes sense, just know that's for you, right? I don't think that we should contrast for God and for you, right? We make it, it makes very clear in this passage as we read it, to serve God is to serve others. But I think he's saying to them, Sometimes what we do makes no sense, and that's because we serve God first. But hey, when it makes sense, be encouraged, because we're serving you, right? When you can receive that and see that what we are doing is for your building up, just know it is. But you need to understand, again, the order. God's service, first and foremost, and out of serving God, we serve you. Again, it's, it's, it's the only way to serve others well is to serve God, and out of that, again, we serve others. And so, again, as I think about the order... I'm struck, at least personally, and I don't think I'm the only one, how often I get the order mixed up. And how often, first and foremost, my concern is, how do I please others? How do I make sure the outward appearance looks good? Yeah, things are all messed up inside, but you know what, God, he, he'll forgive me, and he's full of grace, and it's okay. He knows how messed up I am, you know. So I got to make sure at least that other people don't know how messed up I am, right? I got to start there on the outward appearance. I have to start first, right, on, on pleasing others, right, because they're really hard to please, and then maybe I'll think about pleasing God. And again, God is full of grace. God is full of mercy. God does know how messed up we are and loves us. But I think there's a challenge here to actually begin with, what's in my heart, Lord? Where's my heart? You know, and only you know. And I can begin in that place, right? I mean, out of the heart flows, you know, the words, as Jesus 
sense. I'm not denying that. I think we can do a pretty good job of sort of disguising what's in the heart and only focus on the outward. And what he's calling us to and what the Lord calls us to is to begin, right, in the Lord, in the interior, and to then seek, right, the exterior to flow out of that. Now, again, as I say this, I'm aware sometimes, right, actually saying God knows my heart and, well, you know, I, I serve God. I mean, sometimes Christians can actually kind of use that as a, you know, sort of excuse for, you know, you know, mistreating others, right? Well, you know, or not being accountable, right? You know, it's like, well, you know, I serve God first and foremost, so sorry if, you know, I hurt you, but, you know, I only answer to God. But that, I believe, is not at all what Paul is doing here. As a matter of fact, what's so striking when we read this and we know that, God, that Paul first and foremost sees God as the one he's accountable to is how much he cares about being accountable to the Corinthians, right? I mean, he tells them, hey, I'm sorry I didn't visit you. I know that really hurt you. Here's why I didn't. He explains to them his actions. There's not a lack of openness about what he does. But again, the order in his mind, I believe, is clear, right? And that's, again, the challenge here is actually this is about us and the Lord, right? No one else is going to know. Again, out of our heart flows a lot of things. But we can be pretty good at disguising our outward actions. But the fear of the Lord is to say, I will come before the throne of Christ. And I know he is merciful, but I know I will have to answer for what I've done, right? I know I will receive grace, but I should experience a right fear of the Lord. Am I more fearful of people than I am of God? And that's, I believe, the, the challenge before us. And again, as we seek to persuade others, as we seek to love others, does it actually come from what we've received from the Lord and knowing that he knows our hearts? So it's the fear of the Lord that motivates Paul. But then we see, and again, I believe this is to motivate us, that reality of Jesus and his power, his holiness, and his love. But again, in verse 14, we see there's a second motivation. For the love of Christ controls us. Right? And I think it's really important that we, that we acknowledge these motivations go together. Right? It's not an either-or. It's not either you know the fear of the Lord and that's what controls you and motivates you, or you know the love of Christ and that's what motivates you. Right? And again, sometimes I feel like those two are you know, kind of you know, held in opposition to each other. You know, kind of hear people say, well, you know, I believe in the love in God. So you know, that whole kind of obedience thing and submission thing and holy God, I'm not there. You know? And so they're almost, again, opposed as if we can sort of choose. We, you know, follow God who loves us or God who calls us to obey, you know, and that's our choice. Um, we have a, a dog, um, Luna, um, uh, who, if you've been to our house, been to Newcomer's Dairy, um, you've met Luna. She's a very loving dog. Um, she loves everybody, but she really loves my wife, Molly, like really loves Molly. Like Molly will go out for five minutes into the yard, come in, and it's the happiest moment, you know, of, of Luna's life, you know. I'll be gone a week, I come back, Luna's like, oh, hey. Christian's home, great. Um, I don't know if she thinks of me as Christian. I don't know. So probably pastor. She probably thinks pastor's home. Uh, but anyway, so, so Luna just loves Molly. She follows Molly around. So her happiest moment is to sit at Molly's feet while she's working. Or That's, that's where Luna's at. But at the end of the day, um, Luna's allowed in our room during the day. But at night, um, overnight, she's not allowed in our room. So she has to leave our room. And so we'll be getting ready for bed. And Molly will say to Luna, Luna, get out of our room. And Luna will look at her with those eyes of love. She'll lay down. She'll turn over so that Molly can rub her stomach. Um, but she doesn't leave the room. But if I say, Luna, and I snap my fingers, get out, she gets out. Now, she doesn't look at me with love. She looks at me with contempt. Um, but she leaves the room. And so we figured out, oh, I'm the guy you obey. Molly's the one that she loves, right? I think she sort of loves me, but she really loves Molly. And again, I thought about that. I thought, I think we do that at times. Some of us say, do we have a God who we obey, who's our master, who if he snaps his fingers, we say, yes, Lord, 
Or do we have a God who we love? And the fact is, it's one God, it's one Lord. And we love him, he loves us, and we obey him. We are motivated by the fear of the Lord. In no way dismissing his grace, but acknowledge his holiness and his awesomeness. And we are motivated by the love of the Lord. Right? They both go together. They go hand in hand. And to resist any way of differentiating those, right? I mean, for Paul, it's not, not, you know, well, that's either one or the other. No, of course it's both. God is mighty and God is loving. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Right? How great is the love of Christ? That he died for all. Right? The worst sinner. Right? The worst sin. He died for it. He paid for it. Him who knew no sin, as, as Paul says later in this passage. Right? He paid for all. And so when we doubt the love of Christ, when we question it, right? when our circumstances seem to be telling us, I don't know if God really loves you, we come back to this truth. One died for all. How great is that love that he died for me, he died for you. He died for all. That's the love of Christ which controls us. And then, the second part, because we have concluded one died for all, therefore all have died. Um, now, that's kind of confusing. Like, what does that mean, all have died? I think it becomes clear as we continue to read the next verse. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So he's basically saying one died for all, and for those that receive right, that death in faith, those who believe that he died for them, we actually die. We die to self, right? We're new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Right? To receive, again, the death of Jesus is actually to say, I've died. I've died to the old sinful self, and I'm risen, right? I am risen to a new life in Christ. And that's to be controlled by the love of Christ, to be motivated by the love of Christ is to say, in Christ, I am a new creation. In Christ, the old is gone, the new has come, right? I no longer live for myself, I live for Jesus. And therefore, if I've received the love of Christ, then I demonstrate the love of Christ. I speak of the love of Christ, right? I live out the love of Christ to others. Again, I think the the order's important. Right? And that can sound a little selfish. Like, first, know the love of Jesus, right? You know, kind of put the oxygen mask on yourself first and then put it on others, right? But it's actually a way of humility to say the reason I share the love of Christ with others is not because I'm so smart, because I've figured it out, because I know so much, right? It's actually because I am a sinner saved by grace, right? Because I was lost and Jesus found me. And so I know the love of Christ because Jesus, again, moved towards me when I couldn't move towards him and gave me mercy and forgiveness. And therefore, I'm called to share the love with others, right? But I always do so knowing this is the love I needed. You see that so clearly in Paul's own life and what he's demonstrating here. I don't think he ever forgot the fact, right, that apart from Jesus, right, I mean, he would be a blasphemer. He would be actually attacking the people of God, right? He always remembered that. You see it right here. He says, right, um, uh, verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Now, when you read that verse, it's important to remember that when Paul uses flesh, primarily he uses it to speak of that which is opposed to the spirit. Um, and so to, to say we regard no one according to flesh, it means we don't regard them sort of to, you know, non-spirit-inspired thinking. Right? We're new creations, right? We, therefore, live according to the spirit. And so to live, right, regard someone according to the flesh, right, is to say, well, they're no good, right? They're beyond redemption, right? They're awful, to regard others according to spirit is to say that is someone Jesus died for. 
That is someone who can know the redeeming love of Christ, right? That's someone made in God's image. That's what it means to live according to the Spirit. And so when he says we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, he's not saying we once believed Jesus, you know, came in the flesh and now we believe that no longer. No, of course he believes that, right? I mean, read all his letters, right? Paul affirms Jesus came in the flesh. He had a bodily resurrection, right? We too, as Joel talked about last week, look forward to our bodily resurrection, right? When Christ comes again. And so it's not denying the the body and the importance of the body and the, the fact that Jesus continues, right? In his ascension to have a body, He's saying, I once regarded Christ according to a fleshly way of thinking, outside of the spirit. I once actually regarded Christ as an enemy, right? But now I regard him thus no longer. So you can see how his own story is playing into this. I was an enemy of the Lord, and he forgave me. He reconciled me. And therefore, the love of Christ controls me. Because I've received such a great love, how can I not tell others about this love? How can I not share with others, an incredible love of Jesus, for he died for all. And so he's motivated again by the fear of the Lord, by the love of the Lord, the love of Christ. And finally, we see that he's motivated by the reality that he represents Jesus. And again, I don't think that's just true of Paul. I think believe that is true. I know it's true of each one of us. To be in Christ, right, to be a Christian is to be a representative of Jesus, Right, some see when, when Paul speaks of, you know, ambassador, that he is speaking specifically of his calling and the calling of the apostles. And I believe we can say, yes, absolutely. There was a unique way in which the apostles were called to be ambassadors, right? I mean, the Lord wrote his scriptures, right, through them and through their letters. And so absolutely, we want to acknowledge the uniqueness. But I think we can also say, but if they were called to be ambassadors and we're called to continue in the apostles' work, right, continue to be the church today, then there's a way in which we are called to be ambassadors, Right? And what comes so clearly in the last part of this um, uh, section here of the scripture is that Jesus represented us. He represents us. He came in the body right, to represent us and you know, brought about reconciliation. So we have that incredible verse 21. I mean, a verse that's just, it's sort of almost beyond our minds to, to wrap around. I, I, I felt like reading this um, passage, I was like, well, that would be like a whole dissertation, verse 21, right? But all I can say about it is like he represented us for our sake. He, God, the Father, right, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. He actually represented us sinful people by becoming sin for us. He stood in our place so that we might become the righteousness of God. As he represented us and became sin, we actually are given righteousness, a righteousness that comes not from ourselves but is given to us. We are made righteous in Christ. So he represented us in a way that only he could represent us. He died for all in the way only he could die for all. But therefore, we're called to represent him, right, in a different way. Right? We're called to represent him as ambassadors, as those who make it clear, look, I'm not the king, right, but I represent the king. Right? I come actually from the king's kingdom. Right? I'm, I'm new creation. Right? That verse actually that says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. It's literally, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. That's all it says and in the original Greek. And so the idea there is, yes, we're new creation, but like, we're part of new creation. To be in Christ is to be part of the new creation. We represent the coming kingdom. And we're ambassadors for that kingdom. Right? We are representatives of that kingdom. And so God does the reconciling work, but we are ministers of reconciliation. We share a message of reconciliation. We can't reconcile people to God. Christ only can do that, but we can represent him. We can bear witness to that. 
I uh, recently um, I rewatched um, the movie Argo, if you're familiar with that movie, it came out a number of years ago, um, and tells the story um, of the uh, Iranian hostage crisis that took place in the, in the late 70s, um, but specifically tells the story of, of the few um, foreign service workers that actually got out of um, the uh, U.S. embassy before hostages were taken, and then the U.S. had to figure out how to get them home. They were hiding in Iran, but wanted to get back, so they weren't actually hostages, um, but again, were unsafe there in Iran. And without retelling the whole story, right, it tells the story of how they got out of Iran, but in particular, right, um, if you know the story at all, you know that the ambassador of Canada and the Canadian embassy played a, a big part um, in helping them out. I mean, actually, when, um, you know, the story was first revealed, you know, after they got home, sorry, spoiler alert, but after they um, got home uh, to the U.S., really all that was told um, was that Canada had helped um, these um, American Foreign Service workers uh, get home. The CIA's role wasn't shared uh, for a, a long time. And watching the movie, I remember as a kid, right, in the, you know, late 70s, watching the news. And again, I didn't totally understand um, what was being talked about. Um, but all I understood was Canada is awesome, right? I watched it, it's like, okay, apparently now we love Canadians, right? That's what I got. And somehow it was like, they're not the hostages, but they were sort of there in Iran and, and they're home now. And we love Canada, right? It wasn't, we love the Canadian ambassador. We love the Canadian embassy, although, you know, they were really the heroes, they represented the whole country, and the whole country was being celebrated, right? I remember very clearly on the news, like, hooray for Canada, people waving Canadian flags and celebrating Canada. And I believe that captures what it means to be an ambassador. I said, what we do actually represents the kingdom, it represents the king, right? So it's not so much about the ambassador, it's about who they represent, who they stand for. And that's awesome. Right? And, and it's just, I mean, it's just beautiful how deeply Paul feels this. And may we pray, Spirit of God, help us to feel this. Right? God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We want you to know what we've experienced. Right? We want you to come into this kingdom that we represent. But also, even as we note the passion, we can also feel the pressure of this. As I read this, and I think we represent Jesus. We're ambassadors of the kingdom. We're ambassadors of the king. Right, then it means, wow, like when we mess up, right, you know, you get that, you're being a bad witness, right? And that pressure, right, that what I do bears witness to Jesus, what I do represents him, sometimes can become paralyzing, right? Especially as we look around, we think, oh man, I don't want to be a bad witness, right? And when we are aware of the ways we have been a bad witness, it can actually almost lead to a paralyzation. Should I even try to be a representative of Jesus? Is it just too hard? And my encouragement as I end here is to seek the Lord's help that that wouldn't become paralyzing, that we would feel that pressure, but we would feel it as inspiration, knowing that the Spirit of God helps us, right? God calls us to be ambassadors, but not by ourselves, right? With one another, with Him. And then that pressure would actually put us in the place of knowing in new ways the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. That as we feel the reality, we're called to represent Him. That that, again, would just put us in that place of, Lord, you know my heart. Spirit of God, you can form me and grow me to be more like you. Love of Christ, you have been poured out on me. Let's pray. Lord, may we today, through your spirit, through the truth of your scriptures, may we feel, Lord, that um, joy, the privilege of being your ambassadors, Lord, and whatever calling you've placed on our lives, may we know that, Lord. And may we, in a right way, feel the pressure of that. May we, in a right way, feel the call to be your witnesses. 
May that inspire us to greater humility. May that inspire us to greater submission to you. May it inspire us um, to live as worshipers of you, living in a holy and awesome fear of you, living in a constant um, uh, um, celebration of your incredible love poured out on us. And we thank you, Lord, that yours is the mission, yours is the kingdom, and that we get to follow you in that. We give you all thanks and praise in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.